You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Joshua chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers has given to you? Provide three men from each tribe And I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances. And then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south. And the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of, the, of Israel, to each his portion. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that you would show us your word, that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we pray that you would do this by the power of your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. There's a couple of you that I haven't met, so I'd love to after the service. If I haven't, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been working through the book of Joshua. And just a heads up, we have got two more weeks of Joshua after this week. And then we're going to take like three Sundays in August to kind of think through who we are as a church, who we want to be as a church as the new school uh, year is starting, the semester is beginning, hopefully as we feel the summer ending. Uh, so we're just going to take three weeks just to think about who we are as a people. We hope that will be helpful for us, for all of us, for you, and then we'll get back into Luke after that. Well, there is a common genre of internet video that hits me in the feels every time, and these videos might not be or might not seem related at first, but I think they are. There's the one genre of video uh, where the military mom or dad who's been deployed for a long time comes home and makes a surprise return home appearance to a spouse or a kid or even their dog. Uh, Then there's the video, the genre of video of the person who hears or sees for the first time and then just hearing their siblings or their mother's or their child's voice for the very first time and then they lose it emotionally and then we all lose it emotionally 
or the even like the old woman who goes to her favorite uh, team's like uh, stadium for the first time, or the old man in his living room crying because he's just seen his team win the championship for the first time. I think all of these videos are related because they are people who have been waiting for something for a long time. And then we see and even enter into their emotional experience of finding or experiencing the thing that they've been waiting for. And it hits us in the feels because this is a universal human condition. Whether we subconsciously equate these people's experiences with something that we are waiting for or hoping for, maybe to see a loved one again, to experience something for the first time, even as trivial as like your favorite sports team winning a championship, like someday the Texas Rangers will win the World Series. Someday, I think, I hope. But of waiting and longing for something that then becomes reality. But I think these videos hit us at a deeper human level, a level that we may not be even aware of or able to discern or point to or identify that we feel as humans, I think, and I'm going to hopefully take the next 35 or so minutes to argue that we have this innate sense of spiritual exile, this innate sense of homelessness, that we spiritually long for rest, we spiritually long for home, of the end of separation, of the end of suffering, of the consummation of joy. And so this is what Israel experiences here in chapters 13 through 21 of Joshua. Big chunk here. Warned you guys of this before because what you just heard Quinn read is kind of the middle part of lots of different tribes of Israel getting lots of different areas of the land. And it can be a little bit eye and mind numbing. We'll get to that in a second. But this here, what they're experiencing is not only the end of war that they have been fighting tirelessly for years, but more than that, this is the reality of over 400 years of generational waiting now made reality. This generation here in Joshua, this generation finally gets to experience what their great, 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 great grandparents were once promised. The inheritance of God that comes simply from being his children. And so what is the inheritance? We've already, uh, Kyle read in our call to worship from First Peter about inheritance. We talked about Jesus, the mediator in the Westminster Confession of getting his people an inheritance. Here there is inheritance. What is this inheritance? We're going to think through this, both zoomed in on the inheritance of land for this particular generation, but then zoomed out and thinking through about the ways that we receive an inheritance, about what the New Testament authors write about in very similar ways to the way that the Old Testament uh, believers and saints uh, received the land, but also in significantly different ways. So we're going to ask three questions of this big chunk of Joshua tonight. First of all, what does God give? How does God give it? And why does God give it? What is the content of what he gives, the method, and then the outcome of what he gives? So first question, what does God give? We have just turned over, if you were with us last week, we have just turned over from chapter 12, where at the end, there's like this checklist of kings in Canaan that Joshua had defeated. And so then, in chapter 13, verse 1, we read this. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. Now, the borders of the land 
are given here. And then down in the second half of verse 6 and then in verse 7, God says this, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, the Canaanites. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance, the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, just to repeat or to remind you of what we said in the very first sermon, way back in Joshua 1, because this is now immediately relevant, in Numbers 32, before the people had come, uh, come into the land while they were they had come up south of Canaan, and then they were on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, which again, if you're new to the Bible, these 12 tribes are the names of Jacob's 12 sons. Each of them become one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, except for Joseph. Joseph has two sons, and he doesn't have a tribe named after him, but he's, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, become two tribes. So there's kind of 13 tribes, but with the priestly Levites, as you heard Quinn briefly mention there in chapter 18, and as we'll see later, not, they, the Levites do not get an allotment of land, and so the land then gets divided and given to just 12 tribes. 12 parts. But back in Numbers 32, as Israel is on the east side of the river, they've come up and they're on the east side of the river, about to cross the Jordan River and come into the land. The tribes of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh tell Moses, hey, we kind of like the land right here. Is it okay if we just camp out here and make this our place on the east side of the river? Can we just stay here? And so we saw in chapter one that they kept their promise to help and to fight with their countrymen to make sure that as their countrymen are coming into the land, that they will all have an inheritance for themselves as well. And so the rest of chapter 13 is the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh receiving the borders of their land east of the river. And then in in chapter 16, we see half of half of the tribe of Manasseh receive land west of the Jordan, all all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. They straddle the Jordan River. But before we go any further, can I already say that I've already like numbed you to sleep? Right? Even the most excited Bible readers, the most avid fans of the book of Joshua can read excitedly the first 12 chapters of this book and then start to nod off. Even though we're reading about the land, it might feel like we're dying in the literary wilderness. But imagine that you are Israel. Imagine that you are Israel here. Imagine that you are of the tribe of Ephraim or something. To paraphrase another pastor who put it like this, he said, imagine that you uh, found some 19th century will. Like you just found it. You found a will and you unfold it or unroll it and you're reading this thing and you're reading about this uh, Montana landowner in like the 1820s or something like that who bequeathed land to his grandchildren. You've never been to Montana You have no idea where this land is or what it's like. And so all the landmarks and the borders that he's describing mean nothing to you. But imagine that you are the grandchildren of this Montana landowner who are hearing this will read for the very first time in like the 1850s or something. And with every description that is read, you get more and more excited and you're, you're, you're hearing some, someone reading this will, and you hear read, and to you, Clarabelle, and you're like, oh, Clarabelle, yes, me, what do I get? Your land will go east until you get to, like, the rippling stream, and then as far north as the huge sycamore tree, and then you'll, the, your part of the land will come further south into the very uh, foothills of where we picnicked that one time. To us readers, a uh, hundred years later, 
200 years later, these landmarks of a sycamore tree and the rippling stream, they mean nothing to us. They are meaningless. But to the people receiving the landmarks, to the people receiving the land, it is their own exciting and emotional livelihood. And this is what these chapters are. It is a reading of the will, and it is exciting for the people of what they are receiving from the Lord. But before we get to the will, we have some bookends in chapters 14 and 19 with two individual people. We have Caleb in chapter 14 and Joshua in chapter 19 who receive specific allotments for their immediate families. They're like the only two people who individually receive land apart from their wider tribe. These are the two men in in Numbers 13 who went out with 10 other spies, one spy from each tribe to check out what they were facing in the land and the other 10 came back and they told the people, hey look, we've got no chance. This is a failed effort. We might as well just go back to Egypt. Let's find another place to settle. The Canaanites are too many. They are too powerful. They are too huge and they are too strong. This is doomed. Or as Caleb says in chapter 14, verse 8 of Joshua, he said, these guys came back and made the heart of the people melt. They came back and they told stories about what they'd seen and they made the hearts of all of Israel melt, melt in fear and in dread and in disappointment for what God had brought them to. And yet Caleb says, in chapter 14, he says that he and Joshua, they wholly or wholeheartedly followed the Lord. And so Moses, on that day in Numbers, promised the hill country where the Anakim, those giants that everyone was too afraid of, where they lived, he promised that part of land to Caleb's family specifically. And now Caleb, in chapter 14, is cashing in on that promise. Similarly, at the end of all this, after the entire nation has received its inheritance, Joshua will receive an entire city in the hill country of his tribe, the tribe of Ephraim. And Joshua rebuilds that city and he lives there. And so it seems like the narrator is surrounding on either side of this inheritance thing after the, uh, after the the beginning of the allotment of the people now and before on either side, he is surrounding all of this with wholehearted, bold, courageous obedience of two men. If it weren't for the, their faith in God's promises and his power, maybe none of this would have happened, but it has taken a while. So get this. We read in chapter 14 that it has been 45 years since Moses made the promise to Caleb of having that land. And now Caleb is an 85-year-old man And since we know that Israel wandered for 38 more years after they had come in and spied the land and come back out, this means that this entire conquest of Joshua, everything that we've read in the past 12 chapters, has taken about seven years. I think we can tend to read through Joshua, especially if we're reading it in like a Bible reading plan where we're reading like three chapters a day or something. We've read chapters 1 through 12 in three or four days, and we just assume that this this thing maybe took a couple of months. It's like one battle after another. It's been a grueling and ongoing seven or little time, but it's here. This is seven years. You know what we were doing seven years ago? As a church, we were just starting to meet. If you were with us in our very first uh, gatherings together, we were meeting across the street at St. John's Episcopal seven years ago in just a couple of weeks from now, the first Sunday of August. That was a long time ago. Like how many kids are in this room now that weren't even thought seven years ago? How many of you college students or even college graduates now were just in like middle school then? This time of conquest has required a patient and ongoing faith in God's power and in his promises. And without getting too much into our second point, 
It required patient and ongoing lives of action and of courage. And so with Caleb's family settled here on the front end, the narrator then goes to like the four cardinal directions of the borders of Canaan. Uh, Matt, do you have the map that I put up there? I don't know how well you'll be able to see this. Oh, there it is. Can we see this at all? Uh, yeah, so we've got Reuben and Gad. You can see the black stripe right through the middle. That's the Jordan River. And we've got Reuben at the bottom in the south and Gad and Manasseh on the east side of the river. And then the rest of Manasseh cuts through that green all of that's Manasseh, or the tribe of Joseph. Uh, all of this is cutting through to the west, protecting much, to, much of the coastline. So we've got the eastern border of the land uh, divided. We've got the, most of the Mediterranean border protected. And then in chapter 15, uh, Joshua gives the, to the tribe of Judah, like all of the south. Judah is the tribe that, who since Jacob's deathbed blessing over his 12 sons, way back in Genesis 49, that we expect royalty to come from. The tribe that Rahab from Jericho has now married into, and from her faithful worship of God will come David and his eventual cities of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, way down in the south. So Judah is given land in the south, which will protect Canaan's border from Egypt and the rest of Africa. And the rest of these chapters, then, are just filling in the rest, which begins with what Quinn read in chapter 18, that after these eastern tribes and the, like, the Cardinal direction tribes are given their lands uh, in a move of like really amazing organizational wisdom. What you heard Quinn read is that Joshua gets, like how in the world are we going to divide up the rest of the land? Joshua says, hey, I want three men from every remaining tribe to go out and scout it out. Like, uh, you know, take a surveying equipment and uh, make some maps and draw out the whole thing. And I want you to divide the rest of the land up into seven remaining spots. These plots will be eventually given to the tribes of Asher and Naphtali and Zebulun and Issachar and Dan and Benjamin and Sibion. And then when everyone, these three guys from each of the seven remaining tribes, gets back and agrees on the uh, agreed-upon borders, we'll come back to the tabernacle and Joshua says, I'm going to cast lots, presumably using the Urim and the Thummim, the, the stones of understanding God's providential decisions. And then each tribe uh, then gets the land that the lots decide for them. They've decided that these are seven equally divided plots of land, and then the seven remaining tribes all get their own, they receive their own plot of land with national thankfulness and unity. Then, chapters, in chapter 20, then describes cities of refuge, which we're going to come back, I was planning on talking about cities of refuge in chapter 20 tonight, but I'm just going to tack that on, attach it to the front end of next week's sermon. So next week, we're going to think about chapter 20 and chapter 22 and 23. But 21 then describes how the final tribe of Levi, this tribe has no land of inheritance of their own, but they will instead be the priestly people in and amongst the rest of the nation. Instead of like so many movies or stories of ancient people uh, where you have to go, like, go on some like crazy quest to find the secret will of God, like you have to do this like step-by-step -step scavenger hunt to find some priest who's hiding in some remote hidden cave or something. Instead of that, every person in Israel would just have a priest, more or less kind of like just down on the corner. The word and the will of God will be available and knowable to all of the people, no matter where they live. And then we get the theological summary paragraph for the entire book of Joshua. If you have your Bible, flip over to chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. 
Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now, I realize that we just did like a fast-forward like zoom through of all this thing. We didn't get much into the will of like finding that the tribe of uh, Ephraim or something gets like to the sycamore tree, to the babbling brook. You can read about all of these things. But what in these chapters does God give to his people? Well, verse 43 of chapter 21, he gives them land. Verse 44, he gives them rest and peace. He gives them an end to their striving and their fighting. And in verse 45, he gives them the fulfillment of all of his promises. In other words, all of this, a land to dwell in, in peace and rest, trusting and resting in the promises of God is the inheritance that they have received. Now, throughout Exodus, God calls Israel. He calls the nation his son. My son Israel, he's called out of Egypt. And now his son is receiving an inheritance a place, a land to dwell with God and to know God. And so, now that we know what, what does God give? He gives an inheritance of a land that people might know him and dwell with God. How does God give Israel this land? How does he give rest and peace and the fulfillment of his promises? If that was the content, his inheritance, what is his method? How does God give it? Now, secondly, verse Chapter 21, verse 43 is a really interesting verse. Hopefully, hopefully you still have that open in front of you. This is a really interesting verse. Don't like plow through this. Think about this as I read this again. Verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it. He gave, they took. He gives them possessions, they take their possessions. He gives to his people, and his people take what is already theirs. Now, when God promised Abraham a long time ago, many centuries before, when he promised Abraham a land for his descendants, the fact that even that he would have descendants at all was up in the air, right? When he and his wife Sarah were in their elderly years, still at that point they didn't even have one child, but when God made those promises, Think about this theologically. When God promised that he would give them descendants and that he would give Abraham's descendants a land, were those promises as good as done? Yes. We're outside of time. Those promises would be fulfilled. They were fulfilled. God would keep his promises. But would those promises be resolved right away? No. 400 years later, now seven years of ongoing daily fighting and trusting in the Lord by faith. These promises were as good as done, but God is slowly and unfoldingly keeping his promises. And the same is true for us, his people on this side of the cross. In the same way that God's promises are as good as done, they are true when someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. When he or she is adopted, then in the present and then Many years later, now in the past tense, when I came to faith in Christ, the Lord adopted me into the family of God. When a person comes to faith in Christ, he or she is present and then past tense redeemed. Then, out of slavery, out of slavery to sin and self, he or she is sanctified. He or she is made holy and presentable for God's presence. Present and then in past tense, he or she is saved, saved from condemnation. 
from separation from God. And the New Testament authors talk about all of these things in the past tense, what God has done for us. He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. He has sanctified us. He has saved us. But they also talk about all of those things in the same way and almost sometimes even in the same sentence as future realities. That all of these promises are things that are past true but will be future true as well. They're to be taken hold of as true. All of these promises of redemption and salvation are things that in the same way Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, we are commanded to grab hold of. The New Testament authors talk a ton about this, with maybe the letter of 1 Peter being the the best example, like, book-wide. Peter, right off the bat in chapter 1, Kyle already read this, says, says that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and, undefa- and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is something that God has already done. And yet, then he says, in light of all that, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, because of the holiness of God, you shall be holy for I am holy, God says. And Peter then says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, because of all that, because you have been purified, now love one another earnestly from that purified heart. In other words, you have an inheritance, Christian, of adoption, of redemption, of sanctification, of salvation, of resurrection, of glory. It is all yours, freely given to you in Christ Jesus. Now take it. Possess your possession. Take what's yours. Your receiving it is not a result of your works. We sang together in, in A Mighty Fortress is Our God of all of the victory of just one little word that Jesus uses to vanquish his enemies. He must win the battle. He does it all. He wins the battle. Your receiving anything is not a result of your works, but the actual reality of your experiencing these things is then dependent on you taking it. It may not come as quickly as you'd like, 400-something years in Israel's case. It may not come as easily as you'd like, sin and selfishness, faithlessness and weakness. But when we depend on the work of Jesus alone for our salvation, it is not moralism to desire to become more like Caleb and Joshua. It is not moralism or trying to earn our salvation to want to wholeheartedly serve the Lord and courageously live in the light of his promises to take what's yours. How does this play out this week? What does it mean to possess your possessions, to take what is already yours? Knowing that the Lord has not given me a spirit of weakness, but of courage, and he has given me the spirit of the sacrificial love of Christ, I'm going to consider the needs of my wife, or you all considering the needs of your husband, or your roommates, or your coworkers, or your parents to be more significant than your own, and how I tidy the house, and how I speak with gentleness and humility, and how I work with excellence and with integrity. 
I have been redeemed and adopted as a son or daughter of God. So I will teach my sons and daughters, whoever you have, of the things of God ongoingly and regularly that they may know and believe. Because of who I am in Christ, I will possess my possessions. I will take what is mine in Christ by using my body, my mind, my heart with sexual purity and fidelity to Jesus. Because of what, of how God has forgiven me with grace and compassion, I will forgive others. I will love my neighbor as God has loved me. I will move further into the land, taking more and more the life of Christ with kindness and with just a, a cheerful optimism that God is God and his promises are sure despite everything that I see or experience around me. I'll care for the creation around me. I'll care for the vulnerable around me. And knowing that God has not primarily given the church for me, but me for the church, I'll serve it. I'll serve you all. Laying claim to the promises of God that he will build up his church in love. Not by God like zapping us all with love for one another. That's not how he builds us up in love. It's not like we just wait and wait for God to make me love the church. Make me serve the church. That's not how it works. That's not how it's worked in any of the history of redemption, but by slowly using us for the good of each other, by speaking the truth in love, by taking hold of what, our, what is already ours, our unity in Christ, that we might become more unified because of his promises to hear and to respond to our anxiety and hear and to respond to our requests that we need. I'm going to pray this week, like I actually pray that I might know God and trust God and receive from him his wisdom. And on and on and on and on. As the old saying or the book title goes, Christ plays in 10,000 places. Meaning, the promises of God, possessing my possessions in Christ, what he has won and what he is giving, plays out in my life in 10,000 places. There is not a place where the gospel does not speak to affect and transform my life because of what God has given? Will I take them for my increasing joy, for all of your increasing benefit, for the world's increasing and clarifying, clarifying under, clarified understanding of God? Will we all take what is ours in Christ? I've shared this quote from another pastor before, but he says this, if you're not regularly taking up your cross, if you're not taking what is yours, the new life that he has given you. If you're not regularly taking up your cross, you don't have faith, you have a hobby. And Christianity is a really lame hobby. It's true. If this is not true, if this is just a hobby, this is a terrible hobby. It is a complete waste of time. It does us no good and it's not real. But what if all of this is really real? What if all this isn't just something that we do culturally? What if all this isn't just something that we've come to expect socially, but that the Lord Jesus really rose from the dead? And the Lord Jesus has actually called you by name to specifically redeem you from specific sins into specific joy and holiness. What does that mean for tonight? What does that mean for tomorrow? Possess your possessions. Take what is yours in the Lord Jesus. But how content, or how often are we content for just a little bit of it? We don't want all of it. That's too much. We just want some of it. 
And so, so many times in these chapters, we read that while chapter 21 is true, that all of the promises of God had come to pass, at the same time, in chapter 13, the people didn't completely drive out the Canaanites. In chapter 15, the people of Judah in the south, they didn't drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem doesn't become uh, taken by the people of God until David, centuries later. In chapter 17, the people of Manasseh and Ephraim don't drive out the enemies in their midst. And so is it true that God had given them a land of peace and rest and all the promises of God had come to pass, and yet all of the promises of God didn't seemingly come to pass? Well, chapter 21 can still be true because like, the national complex of Canaan has been broken. There are no more threats of military alliances or national disruption, but the threat of false worship, the threat of nearby seduction away from the God of redemption will remain and plague Israel for generations. And so one commentator puts it like this. I think they were probably tired of fighting. They just wanted a little peace for a while. They wanted to enjoy the spoils of their battles. Their religion was becoming similar to that urged on so by so many professing Christians today. They wanted to be saved, safe, and satisfied. Is that true? Just we want to be saved safe and satisfied. Well, saved they may well have been, and safe too, but they should not have been satisfied to the extent of abandoning their commission. There were were still very large areas of land to be taken. So many times we read this, even in Joshua 13.1. And they were not to settle down in peace and prosperity until they were taken. And so there are other things besides giants that can get our eyes off God and his service. We can get our eyes on peace and comfort or a thousand other things that wrongly compete for God's place. He has given us his place to know him and to enjoy him, and yet there are thousands of things, not all giants, that compete for our worship. How regularly are we the same way as Israel? Content to like hang around the benefits of inheritance, but not to take and to enjoy not to taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, how regularly does Jesus use parables about gifts or inheritance to like sneak past our assumptions? He tells the parable of the man who buries the gift instead of taking hold of the gift for the sake of the kingdom and seeing it grow. He tells the parable of the two brothers who the younger brother, the so-called prodigal, uses his inheritance only for himself. He only uses inheritance for his short-term pleasure. He enjoys the benefits of the father, but then uses it for himself. And his older brother, he expects and demands inheritance based on his own righteousness. Inheritance, though, throughout the Gospels and the way that Jesus teaches about it, throughout the New Testament letters, thinking about ways in which Paul talks about being heirs, heirs of God and what you receive from him, Inheritance, knowing and dwelling with God in peace, adoption and sanctification and salvation, these are all gifts freely given, but they must be taken hold of. He gives us himself to be taken hold of. And so if this is what he gives, he gives inheritance, he gives the ability for his people to know him in peace and security, and then how he gives it, he gives freely, but then his people are to take hold of the free gifts How or why does he give it now thirdly? Why does God give any of this in the first place? Well, right in the middle of these chapters of inheritance comes a high point. 
It's like the, the continental divide where everything flows from on either side. Or it's like the meat in the middle of the inheritance sandwich. And it's chapter 18, verse 1. The very first verse that Quinn read from. Flip over to chapter 18 if you've got your Bible there. And in chapters 13 through 17, up on this side of chapter 18, several of the tribes have been given their allotments. And then on the other side of verse 1 in chapter 18, in verses 2 through 3, we read, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? And the rest of chapters 18 through 21 are about dividing and giving the rest of the land to the people. But do not blow past verse 1 of chapter 18 too quickly. What does it say? Verse 1, chapter 18. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The tent of meeting. The tabernacle. This is the very first time that the people had set up the tabernacle in the book of Joshua here in the land of Canaan. The tabernacle, that mobile tent that when we were going through the book of Exodus in 2020, we spent several Sundays together thinking about, and even more when we were going through the book of Leviticus last year. But Matt, do you have a picture here? I showed you this before several times in the last couple of years, but this is like a modern recreation of the tabernacle in Israel. And this is what gets set up in chapter 18 there at Shiloh for the very first time. The entire grounds, surrounded by seven-foot drapes that run rectangularly, about 150 feet on the north and south sides of the compound and then 75 feet on the east and west. This tent's about 15 feet tall, built with four layers of multicolored drapes. No matter where it was set up, it's a mobile place of worship, a mobile temple. No matter where they stopped to rebuild and set this thing up, the entrance was always oriented toward the east. Why? Well, you are meant to Imagine yourself walking back into Eden. Because of the colors and the angelic creatures woven into the inside of the drapes, you are immediately meant to imagine yourself walking into Eden. In Genesis 3, there are cherubim, angelic creatures, guarding the land with a sword after humanity is driven away into exile to the east of Eden. And as you enter the tent, you are immediately meant to imagine yourself walking into Eden, seeing these angelic creatures, the place where God dwells with his people, We've already seen glimmers of this in the book of Joshua. Just as Adam and Eve were exiled away from the garden to the east in Genesis 3, and then one man, Abraham, is called back from the east into the land, but he never settles there. Who did Joshua meet when he crossed the Jordan, coming from the east with the covenant people of God in chapter 5? Who was the first person that he met crossing the river? Who allowed them back into the lands of of God's promise, of his presence? It's an angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. Now even more intensely, coming further out of the east of Eden exile, the people are finally coming further up and further in into God's presence here in chapter 18. The tabernacle has been set up. The doorway to the east is flung wide open that his people might approach him. And so set in the middle of the land of the entire nation that all the people surround, these courtyards, and then the holy place, and then the most holy place, are increasing levels of holy sacredness, of set-apartness. And if you're walking into Eden, think about it. If you are walking into the Garden of Eden, you are reminded of the daily promise of on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Every day that each human chooses to listen to themselves rather than to listen and hear from the wisdom of God, 
every day that every human chooses to advance his or, own, his or her own kingdom, and by doing so, seeking to overthrow God's kingdom, while death awaits, you shall surely die. And an Israelite is immediately reminded that he or she deserves to die, but God has instituted a sacrificial system in which an animal dies in the place of the people. And the animal receives their just punishment so that there might be forgiveness of sins. You might dwell in peace with God. This entire scene dominates the outer court there. This is the altar in front of the tabernacle. And the priests then enter into the holy place to make further sacrifice. That Then once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place on the day of atonement, even sprinkling the Ark of the Covenant with blood, the footstool of God, the very throne of his victory, now covered in blood so that people might be made right with God and might have their sins forgiven. This is the inheritance of God's people that they might know and walk with God. This, Christian, is your inheritance, that you might know and walk with God. How? Given to you freely by your great high priest who did not shed the blood of an animal but shed his own blood, who drags you into the holy place, the holy place of God's presence, not on the merits of your righteousness but on his own, but you must hold on as he walks in. You must take hold of the promises given to you in him, but why? Why does God give us this, give us any of this in the first place? Just so that you can have your sins forgiven? Just so that you can go to heaven someday? Why does he bring you inheritance? Why does he bring you the ability, the access to know God that you might be brought into the very life of God? you, his created beings, might know, experience, and be wrapped up into the very triune life of God, that you might be united to Jesus by faith, that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit like the tabernacle once was, and that you might know the glory of the Father deeply and transformatively. This is what you were created for. It's not just that you might have your sins forgiven, it's that you might know God, that you might have deep and eternal joy forever. All of this makes for a really, really bad hobby a really bad hobby. But an eternal, mind-blowing adventure awaits if you would simply grab hold. Loosening our grip on the things of this world that so easily distract us and fixing our grip more firmly on Jesus. Or as Paul would say in Philippians 3, which may be the best New Testament summary of these Old Testament chapters of inheritance. Like, if you want to read chapters 13 through 21 in Joshua and then Flip over to Philippians 3, where Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. What is he talking about? This inheritance of resurrection and of ultimate salvation. And not that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has given me himself. He has given me everything that could be known and experienced in him. Now I press on to make it my own. I grab hold of him who has already made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting all of that, all of the things that he has brought us through across the Jordan and all of that, but then now straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Presently, past, then present, then future. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the morning. They knew him, experienced him. Joshua 13 through 21 is the exact same thing. It's just the Garden of Eden recreated. 
welcoming these exiled sinners home. In the tabernacle, God is welcoming sinners home to know and trust him. In the tabernacle, there's, there's food on the table. The light is literally left on. The door is open. This is home. Come and know me. Come and experience me. Knowing and dwelling with God is the home that we've been looking for our whole lives. A land of peace and rest and security. And I am convinced, I'm convinced that the reason that we get so emotional when we see those videos of people feeling and experiencing something that they have been waiting for is because that expectation of waiting for belonging, of waiting for peace and security and the separation now over, all of that is just hardwired into our souls. It is something that we humans innately know but suppress. We long for, but we don't. I'll quote it two to three times a year until the Lord returns, but my favorite moment in any piece of literature is in the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, when Jewel the Unicorn enters the new Narnia at the end of the last battle, and he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it until now. He didn't even know what he was longing for until he experienced it. This is what you have been created for, to know and to enjoy God forever. Christian, this is what you have been given in Christ, to know and to enjoy God forever. Now take it, grab a hold of him, and encourage and in faith take what's yours and give him your life, all of it. Like Joshua or Caleb, wholeheartedly living for him, still enjoying the things of this world, but as gifts, not as God's. Even so, we wait. We wait for Jesus to give him all of, or to give us all of himself. He has, but we don't have all of it yet. We do not see, we are not like him because we have not seen him. So even now, knowing that we can take hold of everything that he has given us in himself, we wait. We wait for consummation. So even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray that he would come. Even today, we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Consummate our joy. Consummate our longing. Though we have union with you, though we have participation with the Spirit, though we have knowledge of the Father, come that we might see you, that we might become like you. Come that our communion with you, though already brought about by your blood, come that our communion might no longer be affected by our weak desires, by our worship of ourself. Come that our Exile, though as good as ended today because of your good promises and your power, come that our union with you, our exile, might be experientially, experientially ended for eternity, no longer affected by our sin. Come bring justice, come bring righteousness, come bring your glory on earth as it is in heaven, in our hearts and in this world surrounding us. Let us see you, let us trust you, let us love you more, let us hold tightly by faith that we might know God. Lord Jesus, we will not let go until you bless us. We pray that you would bless us with your presence. We pray all these things, even now here as we come to the table, bless us with your presence. Make your promises more real and experientially true in our hearts and our minds and our souls, even as we take 
just a small bit of bread and of the cup. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.